Welcome to What's the Buzz Without a Podcast. This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlantic Canada who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in their region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. I'm Andrew Byers, your host for this episode, and today we'll be speaking with our guest, Fletcher Colpitz. So Fletcher Colpitz is a beekeeper from New Brunswick. A third generation beekeeper, his family's been involved in the industry for many, many years. Fletcher is also the chief apiary inspector for the province of New Brunswick and uh, has been involved in the broader industry for, I'm not going to say Fletcher how long, but uh, considerable, consider what are we saying, decades now or just a considerable period of time? Oh, decades is good, yeah. There's a, there's a few decades there. Yes. I think this has been a lifelong uh, a lifelong thing for you, has it not? It has been. I've always been around bees. I haven't really started bees until about 40 years ago on my own, where I've actually uh, taken my own hives under my own uh, responsibility. But I worked with my uncle and uh, before that. So yeah, ever since I was uh, able to run from a beehive, I was doing that at first. And then of course, from then on, uh, been near them ever since. I saw something the other day. It was just a T-shirt for beekeepers, and it said on it, "I'm a beekeeper. If you see me running, try and keep up." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when you're young and uninitiated, that's uh, probably very appropriate. Yeah, yeah yes. The Copets. The Copets have been around beekeeping for a long time in New Brunswick. Yeah, the, the grandfather started uh, when he was 13, and that would be in the uh, 1880s, people were probably doing head math right now and saying, well, well, that's a long time ago. That must've been his great grandfather. But actually there's uh, quite a distance in years between my grandfather and my father and then my father and myself. So there's uh, an extra space in there. But uh, yeah, he started with one box hive that he bought at a, a sale uh, that was at a farm. So I guess you say at a farm sale and uh, took that home and, and went from there. And from there, he went into carpentry. He was a furniture builder and then went into building Langstroth equipment, which was fairly new for the area at that time in the late 1800s. So by the early 1900s, he had quite a business where he actually built Langstroth hives to sell. So he would go around to the different farms who had bees in anything that you could name, anything from boxes to old crocs to old stumps to anything, because Langstroth hadn't reached them yet. And he introduced them to the Langstroth movable, removable frame hives. It kind of revolutionized beekeeping at the time in that area. Back in the day, I guess things, things were very different. I, and I know you as well have some of that early equipment still in your possession, which I find, I find fascinating. Yeah, we have a not, not a museum, we don't even have it set up uh, on a real display, but it, it's, uh, it's here. Yeah, I, we actually displayed it at one of the New Brunswick AGM 
meetings, uh, beekeeping meetings uh, on, on some tables. So yeah, it is, it's, it's interesting. And a lot of it is still actually uh, applicable today. You can use it uh, and it, is, it still works well. Uh, the techniques really haven't changed that much. Of course, there's been a lot of improvements since then, but some of the things still work well for what they uh, were originally designed for. Without a little bit of knowledge, we'd say bees haven't changed either, but I think they probably have. Certain, yeah. My my father would kind of muse with me about his father, being my grandfather that that started our family in bees. About if he could be here today, yeah, which is what the bees are like, not just in temperament, because apparently the bees he started with were the old, what they call the old English, or the old German black bee, the Mellifera, 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 is I guess what is what he had, which is quite different and characteristics from the bees that we have today with the uh, Italian and the Carniolan, where the queen would go out of the hive when you started working on the hive, she would go out the entrance and hide down underneath the landing board and that sort of thing, you know, but just other than that, of course, all the uh, pests and diseases that have come in really not that long ago, really since I've started in the last 30 years, last 20 years, it has changed a lot. Uh, so yeah, it, it is a different beekeeping world, that's for sure, even though the basic characteristics and biologies and the, the things that the bees do to survive on their own, because as we know, they can do that quite well without us, uh, somewhat, uh, that has not changed at all. Just their ability to do it because of the different pests and diseases that have come in and maybe change things a bit, but Bees, bees are still, still the same. Bees are still bees. They're still the amazing creature that they've always had been. I, I think that if, if you don't mind, we can revisit that, those events that you've witnessed over your beekeeping career with the emergence of, of pests and disease. But I think, and, and I don't think these two things can be kept separate. You've also seen the changes in the pollination industry. When I started, it would be in the uh, late 70s, blue, the blueberry industry, pollination industry was very small. It was uh, really in its infancy. Province really wasn't that interested in it as a provincial enterprise for an agricultural commodity for making any amount of large amount of income for the province. So and that was always a bit of a dilemma at bee meetings for beekeepers where they wanted to get some support for bee, for their beekeeping from the government funding and government personnel at the time that offered the funding just were not interested because they didn't really see the value in bees as far as honey because that's all that you would relate bees to was their honey production for the year and it just wasn't that much income and it wasn't until later on that the, the importance of pollination especially on the wild blueberry industry came to light by the government and uh, of New Brunswick and I think all of the maritime provinces were approximately the same time that when that awareness came to light that they were very interested in bees because they connected the, the pollination part of beekeeping to the uh, final uh, blueberry crop every year and then that's when uh, the, the relationship that we have now really, really started to take place, and that would be in, in the 90s or somewhere. So the first 20 years uh, when I started, 
it was uh, it was different. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we were getting something like seventeen dollars per hive back in the seventies for blueberry pollination, and a lot of the blueberry growers at that time uh, weren't encouraged to invest in bees for pollination, so they were kind of thinking, well, you know, you, you get the honey, don't you? Like that was good enough. Like that was most of your pay, and we'll we'll just give you a tip for having them here, uh, maybe a little bit for gas, and that was about it. And then didn't realize that, of course, that if you put a good pollinating colony on your blueberry field, that it was going to yield you many, many dollars in uh, crop later on. But that 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 came around, and and now we uh, now it's now it is the thing. Pollination is what drives the blueberry or the uh, beekeeping industry. Well, the blueberry industry as well, because if it's not for for honey. You know, it, it's not for the honey. It's for the pollination that's uh, of the bees for the blueberries that keep the blueberry producers in good uh, financial standing so they're able to stay in business year after year. I don't know what you feel but those industries now are so interconnected that I'm not sure you can you can even separate the uh, the blueberry industry from the beekeeping industry and the uh, and vice versa you know it's become the, the pollination industry perhaps would be what we we could call it because they are they are heavily dependent on each other that's certainly the case yeah the, to be a commercial beekeeper as far as i know all of the beekeepers who call themselves commercial are in the, the pollination business because that is your bread and butter and it's almost as if the honey is sort of the, the gravy now it's um, honey is more un, unpredictable depending on what kind of weather you have what kind of conditions that you uh, receive throughout the honey producing part of the year that will give you that honey this year is is a drought in a lot of places in the atlantic region so a lot of the honey crops are way down to almost non-existent and other years they're uh, they're way up so you never can really depend on honey sales or honey crop for your income but the pollination is pretty doesn't really uh, fluctuate okay? or if it does it's very little yes yeah and well we've 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 seen a restoration of the 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 price for blueberries this season which uh, I'm I'm happy and pleased for our blueberry producers that that's occurred but now with um this little bit of extra cash around in the in the blueberry industry do you think that will mean there's going to be uh, an increased demand for for hives um have you seen those trends in the past years for the pollination industry i think the increase has been there for a while now even the last year perhaps the year before i believe that anybody who wanted to pollinate their, uh, or put their bees on blueberry pollination could do so. It was, well, I believe it was 16, 2016 was the year that, uh, or 17, that the demand just wasn't there because the price for berries was so low. And some people didn't get their bees out because there just wasn't the demand for them. But I think in the last two to three years, it, it has come back already that uh, if you really look, you could pollinate your colonies. Good, and that must be reassuring for, for young people that are, or new, people that are new to the industry, just starting out to know that there is that demand and opportunity. Yes, yeah, for sure. Well, the, the government pr promotions uh, is still there. You know, the uh, 
subsidy programs to help beekeepers get started as uh, as long as they agree to uh, participate in the pollination of blueberries uh, is, is, is still there. Maybe it's not as strong as it has been in the past, but uh, that just tells us that the importance is still there and the demand is still there. So it's, it's still encouraging. Okay. Just to go back a little bit, Fletcher, you, you, you talked about a period where the beekeeping wasn't almost entirely focused on the management of pests and disease. And, and for those of us that didn't experience that, it, it seems almost too good to be true. It's uh, unbelievable that, that, you know, your biggest, you, the biggest thing on your mind as a beekeeper was not controlling Varroa or whatever other, what other, other uh, infectious agent we we're having in our hives. Just for my own sake, can you tell us what that must have been like? And and as you've seen these changes over the years, uh, you know, I just like if you could share what, that experience with us a bit. Well, during the seventies, there was a large uptake of beekeepers in the Maritimes as well. Beekeeping is very popular now, and and is and is probably maybe more popular every year as as time goes by. The new entrances into uh, Nova Scotia, PEI and New Brunswick every year, you know, as new beekeepers being registered is, is still increasing. Uh, that's the way it was in the 70s as well. It was kind of uh, back to the, the uh, land movement at that time and everybody wanted to, uh, or a lot of people wanted to hobby farm and, and have a hive uh, to a bees. I was regional bee inspector at that time. I was just responsible for, for two counties. So from 79 to 84, I did that, which has really, really got me uh, broke into beekeeping because I was able to travel around a lot of the, the beekeepers in, in those two counties and learn a lot from the beekeepers and, and their bees and their different styles of management, of course. So I, uh, there were courses going on in the local clubs at that time and I was asked to speak on pests and diseases. And really, <laughs> all there really was at the time was American fowl brood. A European fowl brood was there, but it really hard, very rare, hardly seen it at all. There were things that people who were really more into the futuristic uh, looking at beekeeping aspect knew, you know, they knew more than I did. I was asking me questions about trichiomite and not bromite back then, that was that was too far away, but tracheomite and maybe some other things. And I just didn't really know what they were talking about. And it was all all we were focused on at that time was American fall brood and that was it. There's some chalk brood around, but I believe that didn't come in till just a few years before 1970. I think 1967 is the first time that it came into Canada from pollen from Europe. So by the middle, you know, middle 70s, it was starting to show up, but it wasn't that bad yet. So very minor. And you can only talk so long on American fowl brood, but that was my that was my talk. And I couldn't really address these other questions about things that people could see that were coming or possibly were, were coming. You know, I, I just really couldn't comment on that. So it didn't take long, right? So by the mid 80s or um, certainly by the early 90s, tracheomite was was here and, and so was Varroa uh, and we, we've been going ever since because of all the other viruses that Varroa would introduce and just made us aware of viruses back then in the late 70s early 80s uh, viruses weren't even 
mentioned except for maybe paralysis virus, but that was kind of an exotic thing that yeah, it happened here and there, but it wasn't really uh, a major player in the health of beehive. But now, of course, any virus is important because of the varroa vector that makes them a big problem. So yeah, things have, things have changed quite a bit. It jumped quite a bit just within those 10 to 15 years. And uh, European fowl brood seems to be, and, and I think you were, you were in, in your experience and in, in seeing a number of, of bee operations, you're, you're seeing a change in this, uh, this disease European fowl brood, which, which we worry quite a bit about in our region because it's also linked perhaps to blueberry pollination. It, it seems to be, I was just listening to the online Ontario AGM where the provincial apiarists there gave an update on the different diseases in, uh, or different disease rates in Ontario, just the annual report. And he mentioned the European fowl brood. And it seems to be that right now the bees that are coming into New Brunswick, which is uh, close to 30,000 every year, uh, or in the last year, uh, from Ontario, um, don't seem to be suffering from uh, EFB because they've been on wild blueberry pollination. But there have been in the past, in uh, 2011, 2012, it was uh, a wet, damp pollination period, and uh, it was quite alarming in the amount of European fowl brood in the Ontario colonies that were returning, they actually lose their summer honey production because of it. So it's kind of a fickle thing, but yeah, you're right. In general, uh, it's a concern really North America and uh, Europe. Uh, they're seeing more and more of it. And we're not just sure if it's linked to any specific crop, whether it's a pollen issue, um, you know, the type of pollen, a single source pollen, uh, pH of the pollen. It seems to be a combination of, of things, but it is definitely, it, it's sort of, it's a new American fowl brood. We see it almost as much, we see it a lot more now than we did, than we are seeing American fowl brood. Fowl brood, American fowl brood lately is not an issue. It's very low. Uh, it's easy to control, it seems, and once you have control and apply the proper management procedures, you can eliminate it and keep it eliminated. European fowl brood is not that way, where just depending on the weather and depending on stresses such as pollination and pollen sources, uh, you can have a problem. And it can be a big problem. It can wipe out your, your colony or your colony can recover. Most provinces do not have the requirement to burn for a European fowl root. It's considered a less virulent disease. Therefore, um, they're allowed to recover if they can. But we've seen lots of colonies that have either died out with it or should be, you know, should, should be treated and uh, or left on their own if it's not bad. Some of them will completely recover on their own. Some will recover with a little bit of, uh, of help. So, uh, but it is, yeah, it's a new concern. Uh, it's rated all within the, uh, at least the, the Western beekeeping um, communities that I'm aware of.
and, and and speaking with other people, it's not just our region where we're seeing this this atypical um, European fowl brood, and and the challenges with these these sorts of things when they change is the diagnosis for beekeepers because if you don't have an experience of the disease or in this case of the changes in the disease, it's it's quite difficult to identify and. And my understanding is that now for beekeepers, is there a challenge to, to distinguish between American fowl brood and European fowl brood? Yes, it, it, one thing that has happened with the European fowl brood is that it, when it has changed, now that it has changed its characteristics from what it used to be. And it used to be quite definitely different than the American fowl brood. And, in uh, symptoms and the way it showed up in the in the brood, uh, but now it, it kind of mimics American fowl brood in some ways, you know, where it dies in later stages, uh, in a later pupa stage, even capped over sometimes. So you've got the uh, perforations and cappies and things like that. I won't go into the details of, of what it is, but yes, it does cross over into the detection characteristics of American public. And that's where it is, even, even when Mary and I, of course, we do the inspections together, we, uh, we have to discuss it sometimes because it, it's still that close. We can, we, we've seen enough of it now, so we can pretty well tell that it is European fowl brood. But if you're not initiated to just how close it could be to the American fowl brood, it, yeah, it's, it can definitely throw you. Yeah, and, th and that's one, of the new things about a European fowlbird. And a lot of the journals and a lot of the disease books have not caught up to that yet. They're still showing you pictures of the traditional European fowlbird, how, what it looks like and uh, what it smells like and all that. And that's not the case anymore. And why that is, we're not sure. That's still being studied as to how it has evolved or mutated or whatever it's done. But it yeah. definitely has changed. It, it, it always seems like when we have these discussions, uh, we're, we're as beekeepers playing catch up. The disease has managed to just keep one, one little step ahead of us and we're, we're chasing them in our, in our treatments. Um, and I'm sure there's, there's other things that we need to be aware of as, as beekeepers in, in terms of some of the emerging pests and diseases. Is there anything that you, uh, you have particular concerns about that we, we should keep an eye open for? Uh, you mean things that, that aren't here yet? Well, or, or yes, yeah, let's talk about things that aren't here yet, Fletcher, or that we don't know are here yet. Yeah. Well, well, there's that mite called trouble alops. Of course, everybody is very concerned about that because that will uh, cohabitate with, with varroa. So varroa and trouble alops will inhabit the same cell and do damage on the same pupa at the same time. And it's uh, quite difficult to, uh, to deal with and to control. So it's, it's something that we don't want, of course, uh, but it's like back in the early 80s when I was doing these uh, talks on, on disease, which was American fowl brood, because that's all we had then. And somebody asked me about trachea mite. And well, it's kind of like, that's, we're in that scenario with uh, trophallops because now this is something that's far off, but will it be here? Well, we hope not, but it could be. 
I think in, in reading a little bit about it, it seems that there's a pattern emerges. These, these new pests come along and because we suffer through our cold New Brunswick winters, we think that these, these, uh, these insects and parasites will as well. Did people say that about Varroa back in the day? Did they say, oh, this might wouldn't survive in, in New Brunswick or, or the Atlantic region? Because I know we've said that now, but they're saying it about the tropolalaps. Um, the, the small hive beetle is, we're saying that that will help us manage the small hive beetle our severe winters compared to where this, the natural environment of this, these insects and pests. I just wondering, did they say that about the, the Varroa at the time? I don't recall them saying anything about that. No, but but actually the way that it has turned out, it's it's partially true because our bees do go into a dormancy stage for so many months during the cold weather period where there is no brood or very little brood and therefore the varroa mite does take a natural decline in its population with treatment or without treatment. And uh, so that, that is a benefit. If I can do a little side information here, let, Absolutely. As, as all of us know, Newfoundland currently doesn't have Varroa, and they have an excellent Varroa action plan, uh, which is uh, designed to keep Varroa out if it does make landfall there, that early detected and early eradicated. I know that hasn't worked other places, but because of the way the bees are distributed in Newfoundland, and because of their bee season, as far as starting late and ending early and, and other aspects of their industry, it, it just might work if it did, ever did get there. So Varroa, if Varroa ever did get to Newfoundland, I, I, I would think, and, and was established there, I do believe that the weather in Newfoundland, because it's even more harsh than it is in the rest of the Maritimes, rest of the Atlantic region, that the Varroa would have even less time to be a, a large problem there. I, it'd be a large problem, but it'd be easier to control, put that way, because of the, their longer winter and uh, broodless period. It would still establish and it would still do damage and it would still destroy colonies for sure. But the, the treatments I think that we have here would be just effective or more effective there. So in answer to your question, Varroa, is is definitely influenced by uh, by the weather or a, by a dormancy of uh, a brood production. So uh, the further north you, you go, I know the, the harder it is to keep bees, the harder it is for the bees, but it should also be harder for their parasites and pests as well. I, I don't know if we should mention, I, I think we already did, it's too late, the small hive beetle. Because you and I have spent, I don't know how much time, Fletcher, <laughs> together and, and, and separately chasing small hive beetles um, in, in New Brunswick and, and Ontario. How do you feel that that pest is affecting the, the beekeeping industry in New Brunswick? I'd like to sum it up with a quote from the, uh, is it Murray McGregor from Scotland? Yes. Yeah, the, the, the King of Heather Honey, King who Heather recently Honey. did a webinar for the Nova Scotia Beekeepers yes. Association. Yeah, very, very informative as to what beekeeping is like there in Scotland. And he was asked that question as well, because he gets, uh, they don't have it in Scotland, I don't believe. 
and uh, he was getting stock from other places in Europe that do or could have beetle. And his uh, he summed it up by saying, uh, no, it's not going to be a threat here because uh, that that particular pest is climatically bound. And I like that. Right. Term. Yes. I really yes. like that term. We, and I think that's what it's uh, showing here in New Brunswick because it's been three years. It's, uh, yeah, 2017 is when it was first detected in New Brunswick. Yes. In the spring. And uh, since then, it has not established. It has been coming in every year from out of province bees to uh, pollinate uh, the blueberries, you know, in those colonies and has been in range of New Brunswick colonies every year. The New Brunswick colonies have picked up a few of those beetles that spring, that summer they've been there, the next spring they're not there. Uh, that fall they're not a problem in the honey house, uh, honey extraction procedure or in the hive. So far the evidence is showing that they're also climatically bound <laughs> to uh, to prosper here, in, I believe in the Maritimes. Now, southern Nova Scotia, I don't know. You know, we don't know where that chromatic line is, or where they're bound and where they're not bound. We know that in Niagara area in Ontario, they're definitely not bound because they're they are they are uh, doing well as you know the. <laughs> As far as spreading goes, uh, they're continuing the spread um, east, really northeast uh, along the 401 in Ontario and uh, and elsewhere in Ontario. So they are spreading there and they are apparently establishing there. So I, I find it interesting, Fletcher, that in, you, in your career, you, you talk um, about the early days when you had very little pressure from pests and disease. Now you've come to a point where you spend most of your, your professional time as an inspector, along with your wife, Mary, you mentioned, I know you work as a team out looking for, for pests and disease. Um, can you give us a little overview of, of your work as an inspector? Well, we started in 2004 as uh, chief apiary inspector or inspectors, since there's, there's two of us as a team. And that was for, for New Brunswick. We were hired through the department of New Brunswick as uh, casuals, six months of the year, every year, rehired every year. And it's as of this past summer, we, it's been 17 summers. And uh, yeah, it's the job sort of evolved as uh, time went by, as jobs do. Uh, they kind of describe or describe themselves. So we weren't really sure what we were to do other than what my experience was from being a regional inspector in those two counties from 79 to 84. That's, I knew that's what I wanted to do and that's what I like to do. I just like to look at bees all day. I'd rather be in the bee yard than it would be in the honey room. And bees are always interesting and uh, always good to work with and always sometimes a challenge, which is... Uh, entertaining to me, which is always uh, um, fun for me. I like to go into bee yards where people says that they've got nasty, ugly bees. And uh, as people that know me, I normally don't wear a veil, usually short sleeves, uh, but I always have a smoker. 
and uh, use, using a smoke properly is the way I always get along with my own bees and anybody else's bees, and, but not by being protected necessarily. So they asked me, aren't you going to wear any protection? I said, well, I will if the bees tell me to, you know, to, to wear something. So I always try them first. I always try to get along with them first without having to uh, be protected. And yeah, I take a few stings, but I don't get stung a lot, um, like the average beekeeper, I think. So uh, that was uh, the first interesting part of, of bee inspecting was to assess the beekeeper first to see how they got along with their bees and how they worked with their bees. Uh, some people would uh, rely on their protection wholeheartedly, you know, all the way to duct tape their cuffs and their their shirt sleeves, but not not use a smoker. And like they're going to war. Yeah, actually, that's what we call it, uh, <laughs> with a hive tool in, in one hand and and uh, something else on the other hand is like they were in like their battle dress. They were ready for war, and that's what it was. Because without smoke, you have no way of quieting a beehive down, uh, or to distract them from being invaded by the beekeeper, even a gentle beekeeper. It's still an invasion into their private uh, residence, so they're naturally going to be. Uh, not aggressive, but uh, defensive. They're, actually, they're, they're designed to defend the, their home, so they're going to do that. So we need something to, to soften that effect, which smoke does very well. So I've always just worked with, with smoke and, uh, and learn how not to set off their alarm system, you know, their alert uh, pheromone, which is, you know, by bump, thump, and bang, or crushing the bees themselves going slow and easy and not rolling bees, uh, you can still work right along at a fairly good pace without doing any of those things once you're sensitive to what the bees are sensitive to. So we've learned all these things by, by, by inspecting. When we started the, the European fowl brood rate in New Brunswick was fairly high and some regions of the province, it was quite endemic. It was there, uh, no real inspections like high their beekeeper to beekeeper, hive to hive inspections, what I call like so many hives in a yard or so many hives per beekeeper had been done for quite a few years. And we know that once that occurs that American fowl brood has the opportunity to spread uh, from beekeeper to beekeeper, usually by equipment or bees being sold. And that's what had, had happened. So uh, it took about four years in order to locate those operations and work with them and to get them cleaned up American fowl brood and also that stopped the spread of the fowl brood from, from going from those operations and uh, after that it was as we call it, just putting out small fires here and there from where it had been established uh, over the years and within five years it went right down to a out of three percent something like that and it's been less than 2% ever since. And not just this province, but we're also contracted to do other provinces and other in the Atlantic region and the same thing there. There, there had been uh, quite a spread of American fowl brood and they just needed somebody to recognize it and to visit the different, all the different beekeepers of where it possibly was and where it was coming from and just uh, get that under control and uh, American fowl brood has not really been an issue in the maritime provinces, at least that we've been involved in uh, since. So uh, that's kind of the overview of, of 
why we were hired was to do the actual inspections and to address the foul brood issue. But of course, uh, we do a lot more than that. I guess it's called the, uh, what's it called, Andrew? What's that word? Resource, uh, where they have questions about everything but disease, you know, as to why is my hive doing this and why is the, the queen not performing or is there even a queen there or is it a laying worker or anything like that? Because a lot of the beekeepers that we see are either, either first year or very novice. So they always have questions about bees and well, even somebody has been at it as long as, as we have, we, we still get questions about bees. There's, 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 I still get questions uh, about bees that I, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I know they do that, but why, I don't know. So uh, we have a broad, ex, exper uh, broad exposure to all the aspects of beekeeping and to all the different things that bees will do. We invite people into our own personal apiaries to, to work with us if they wish. And, and we usually get two or three people a year, a summer, if not more. And some of these people have a few bees in their backyard, but they maybe want to have more once they learn more. Uh, so the analogy I like to give them is, well, if you come in with us for an afternoon, you know, we have, we have a yard of 30 hives that are just back from three weeks on the blueberry field. We don't know what condition they're in. You're, you're going to see just about everything that you can see from queenless to doing really well to not doing well for different reasons. So for you to spend an afternoon and looking at 30 hives, that's probably equivalent of so many years of you being into your two hives in the back yard and seeing all the different scenarios that those hives could possibly show you. But we really enjoy that because at the end of the day, people feel so much more experienced and so much more confident and uh, as to how to handle the hive that they have currently and how to expand them and uh, and then how to make them more more productive possibly. So anybody can do that. You know, it's not because we're inspectors or not because we have so many hives. Any, any beekeeper who would like to show somebody else who's interested in knowing more about bees can just invite them into to their yard of 10 or five or three, you know, if that beekeeper that has only got one and doesn't really know what to do yet, well, you, you've gone a lot further in your beekeeping than that beekeeper. So that's, uh, that's also been uh, the very valuable part of, the, of this, of this job and the most, uh, most interesting, you know, the disease is interesting, but you know, disease is disease. <laughs> it's uh, like European foul brood is, is changed and changing. Yeah, that's interesting. It's all, uh, but uh, it's, it's not very rewarding. Well, helping other people is, is very rewarding. Yeah, and, and I always encourage beekeepers who are new, because I found this, as you know, Fletcher, I've recently returned to the Atlantic region from being away for a while. And, and when I took up beekeeping here, it was gonna be very different from the, the experience I had in England where I came from, because it was just sort of a fun thing I did once in a while as a hobby. And uh, when I came back and decided to have a few more bees, I found that beekeeping community here was very welcoming. So, you know, with the questions and with, you know, to, to, to formalize it, we could call it a, a, a mentorship relationship that you have with, with your local beekeeper. And that's encouraged through our associations, I know. But the beekeeping community is, is so willing to share information. And I've been very lucky to spend time with you and, and Mary out doing inspections. 
talking about bees and, and you're absolutely right. To spend a few minutes with someone else's bees, you learn so much. It, it can be a, a long process to learn from your one or two hives. Um, but a day with, with someone like yourself is, it's a, just a masterclass in, in beekeeping. So yeah, that's, that's not to have you overwhelmed now with phone calls of people wanting to <laughs> come spend time, but it, it is well worthwhile. And I think we're in an interesting period with the, with the resurgence in this, what you've seen in the 70s now happening again with such an interest in beekeeping. And the people that are that are doing that, I think there's a there's a blend that some people have some some real knowledge to share, and then there's other people that that are bringing some some information, and you kind of shake your head. And I think the smoker example that you talked about, and and I, I I've gotten into trouble before because I have opinions about using smokers along yours, but then there's there's beekeepers now that. They say to me, no, I don't need a smoker with my bees. And, and to me, that, that's a perfect example of where, okay, we've got to make sure that all the information is available because someone who's never been in a beehive before and is a hearing, oh, I don't need a smoker. I think that's some information that they need to kind of process and think about and maybe talk to beekeepers and talk to people who've had experience. And I think that's one example of many where Talk to beekeepers, you'll get, you know, as we say, you ask a bee, you know, five beekeepers the same question, you get five different answers, but then think about it yourself. So um, I think we're, we're going through a real period where people, it's great to get into beekeeping, but make sure you're gathering up all the information along the way to make real good decisions. Yes, and it's a lot of, of technique, like what works best uh, for you, for your, for your personal temperament personal speed of, uh, of acting and reacting to things. Some people are what you call high sped, uh, some people are low sped. Uh, those, all those things make a big difference when you're working with bees. If you can go low speed and be sensitive to the bees, as uh, you know, with, with no protection other than a smoker, it's kind of like a, a tight rope walker without a net. Uh, a tight rope walker with a net is going to uh, be a little faster, take more chances, take shortcuts, and because he's got assurance of uh, not getting not getting hurt if he falls. But uh, if you just just you and your smoker and a hive tool and nothing else, you're going to be very careful about not squishing bees, uh, not going too fast, and not bumping and thumping, and uh, and that helps the bees too. That helps them relax a bit and while you're there, and uh, everything goes better. Uh, there's you know, there's less, less stinging, less pain, less attempting, attempted to sting through through the protection and, and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, it's just a matter of knowing the temperament of what you're working with and uh, gauging your own temperament to that. Mm. I, I think the use of gloves is the other one that I have quite often discussed with, with new beekeepers. Because I think in terms of you learning how to work properly in a hive, if you have great big heavy gloves that will protect you from stings, um, it might take you a lot longer to learn to be slow and gentle in your hive. Most of the so-called big gloves that are commercially available aren't really fitted well at all to your hand or to the tip of your fingers to lift frames. Out of, the, out of the hive. They're, sometimes they're too long or they're too big, they're too bulky, too thick. 
and you just really can't grip a frame well. Um, you have to kind of use two hands and get the frame pried up so you can get a hold of it. And that's usually catty, cor catty corner in your hive and it could squish bees. It's not smooth operation by any means. So yeah, I know people that use gloves or need to use gloves because of allergies and things like that. But uh, much a much better design glove that's not even a bee glove, like a, a gardening glove or a riding glove or something like that, that actually lets them grip the, the frame better. I see those bee gloves, those commercially vented long up to the elbow bee gloves as something that you would wear at night when you're transporting bees, handling colonies or handling hives by hand, or even if you're doing it mechanized with a forklift or a, or a lift on the truck uh, by by the pallet load, you're still going to have bees on the outside of your hives that you're going to have to touch once in a while. Well, at night, we know that if you touch a, a bee, is going to crawl up. They don't fly, they crawl and they stink. So that's, that's when I would employ those gloves. So that's what those, to me, that's what those gloves are made for. They're made for the outside of the hive type of work with bees. They're not meant for the inside of the hive. And another thing about them is we see so many of those type of gloves that, you know, they're hard to wash. Uh, don't even know if you can really wash them effectively. I think it, it would take some work to disinfect them with chlorine bleach or something like that, but they, they are uh, germs, you know, they're a possible vector of disease, put it that way, of bacterial mm -hmm. disease. And we've seen crews that were doing uh, assessment tests for certain organizations who were going from opera, uh, beekeeper to beekeeper, taking samples and using these same leather black heavy gloves that are just black from hive use and not, you know, having no good way of uh, disinfecting them and has caused problems too. So even with the own beekeeper not wanting to possibly spread hive to hive or yard to yard of their own problems, uh, you know, they're, they're yeah, big gloves, as you can tell, I'm not a fan. <laughs> no, no, nor am I. And, and you know, we're, we're one of the few people that when we go to work, we put on extra clothing in the, in the heat of summer. So I think if people can get used to not wearing gloves, it's a much more pleasant experience. But that, you know, a couple of practical um, tips for, for new beekeepers in, in that discussion of using smokers and gloves. So w with... Um, the, these opportunities to grow our industry, what would be what would be something you'd say to somebody who was, you know, they had a few hives and they want to take it that next step to, to make it more of a, of a commercial business, uh, either as a sideliner or, or to move on to become a, a bigger operator in, in pollination and honey production. Would you have any advice for the individual? Well, you mentioned earlier that the mentorship thing uh, is the best way to go. Find somebody who has success. How can you measure if somebody has been successful in the past? Well, I would say ask them on their winter losses because winter kind of tells us as to what all the rest of our management adds up to. If our bees are still alive in the spring, then what we did on all the months before the winter season must have been okay. So, you know, if you've got less than 20% loss or right around 20% loss on average for the last five years, they're probably uh, doing quite well. They're, they're what I would call successful. If that 
potential mentor person has a bad year, you know, and once in five or once in 10 years, that's still okay. If they're most, if they're more successful than not, then they're successful year after year. So uh, I'd say go there. I, I know Fletcher that we've had some interesting discussions around green breeding and, and that side of our industry. And I think I'd like to save that for another time perhaps because I don't know how long it would take us to fully explore that, but probably we're both smiling, not a few minutes. And, and there's many other areas of beekeeping and, and your, your vast knowledge. And I know you're quite uh, uh, modest about it, but the, the fact is that you're, as we've said, 40 years of beekeeping have given you a great experience. So it'd be great to get that a little bit of what you know uh, out to our community. And I know you're, you've shared so much over the years with, uh, with people and, and I, I've, never, I've never known anyone to say I couldn't get a hold of Fletcher. I, maybe you don't want me to tell people that because your phone will start to ring more than it does, but I know you're always willing to share information. So um, just before we, we wrap up, is there anything else that you think is, is going to be really important to our industry in the next you know, few years and into the future? I'm glad you mentioned queen breeding or bee reproduction within your own operation, your own province, your own area. An apiculturalist in Quebec is promoting domestic production of queens and bees instead of importing them from offshore. I've always been a big proponent of, of that. As, as you know, we've never purchased or never had to purchase queens. I've done it on an experimental basis just to see how good they were and Turned out that there was no better than really than what we had. It, it wasn't worth pursuing. So we just stayed with what we'd always done in the past. And that was just use our own bees to produce our own queens, to produce our own bees. And somebody says, oh, that's inbreeding. Where I am uh, located, this is no possibility of that because there's large commercial beekeepers, all, uh, one large one, especially uh, that surrounds all the area that I'm in and uh, they get their bees from everywhere. So that's not a, doesn't, there's never a concern, but I kept my own queen lines for all these years, it's 40 years and just, and, and never grafted. I don't know how to graft and people were, would be shocked to hear that. I uh, never had to because we, I've had this heritage technique from my family and uh, which isn't no secret, it's, uh, it's out there. Uh, queen breeders, Producers aren't really fond of it, but it works for me. I, I think it'll work for anybody. There's, I'm not the only one doing it. There's lots, and it's not just because of me is why other people are doing it. it. It's something that always has been done, but has not been promoted by the uh, larger bee in, queen breeder industry. But it works well, and it's uh, it, it's cheap, but it's or I should say it's inexpensive, but it's not cheap. Uh, it's uh, it takes time and takes some knowledge, but uh, your bees will. We'll do all the rest to make sure that uh, they're just as good as anything you can get from any queen producer. So that's, yeah, without getting into it, I'd like to say that uh, we should, or getting into the, the actual details of how to do that, we're not going to do that now, but what I want to say is uh, it can be done and that should either, not necessarily what I do, but anything that can be done to keep from buying offshore queens should be done including grafting. There's nothing wrong with grafting. Grafting's fine uh, if you want to do that. If that keeps you from buying offshore queens, that, that's great. But um, there's 11 
million dollars or more every year that uh, goes out of the country of Canada alone. A lot of it is the Western provinces that buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of queens from offshore. It's not necessary. Uh, we can be doing it with our own stock and we'll have better stock because our localized stock is not only just good, it's better and you know what you've got. And to buy an offshore queen, uh, you know, you, you get good batches, you get poor batches. Uh, sometimes they're really good and excellent. You hardly lose any and they're very productive. Other years, they don't accept well to the hive. And uh, when they do, they're superseded or don't produce well. So it's kind of hit and miss. And I'm not saying it's not that way with your own queen production, but at least it's at a smaller scale and you, you're not out so much cash. I know there's this time issue will you know say well the season's so short we need a queen early in the season to get going earlier we've always gotten around that by looking at beekeeping as a, it's a two-year cycle so i prepare my queens and my nukes this year winter them above the strong colonies to uh, make up for any winter loss i have next year or to add to any uh, of my excess brood from the strong colonies to go to blueberries so it's it's done it's there so it's just it's just a matter of management knowing how to do it but my point is it can be done people say well we have to get offshore packages of bees and queens or we just can't stay in business i don't see it that way i don't think it's uh, possible we did this on a almost a 600 hive scale you know it's just two 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 and a half people uh, did it all this way on our own so we have less bees than that now but now that we've done these doing the inspection job but uh at, but you know you can go with a lot of colonies and do this you don't have to be dependent on on offshore I, I think if we were to take a step back from beekeeping and just look at agriculture generally and and someone was looking at another crop or other livestock and you started to talk about importing that plant or that animal from Hawaii or California to our region I think people would would look at you and think well how can you expect that crop or that livestock to be successful in your region if you just import it from from somewhere that it hasn't had an opportunity to adapt so i think you know the 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 principle of of having livestock that is adapted to our region is is fundamental and beekeepers are understanding that more and i know the associations are working are working in that direction but yeah it would be great to have a, a a bee that was wholly adapted and and bred and developed for for our region and for our needs because as we've said our our beekeeping industry is is underpinned the foundations of that now are are strongly within the pollination industry for for low bush blueberries so the way we want our bees to to perform is going to be different because we need that early spring buildup to get ready for pollination and then, then subsequent splitting and honey crops. So it may be such a fundamental difference between our expectation of our bees in our areas and other, other places that, yeah, that, that's another reason to look at, at stock that's suited not only to our climate and our region, but to our, our purposes. So I, I'm reassured that there's a, there is a movement and we know change is slow, isn't it? But, um, and I think the, the change you were talking about and, and people looking at how do you manage your bees with that idea that, okay, it's not just gonna be in the spring, I need to import queens to increase the number. It's take a, take a, 
uh, that two-year approach, I think, is, is going to be part of that change. So we'll see where that goes. And, uh, and again, we'll talk about this additionally in some, some, other, some other time. When you have a few minutes, Fletcher, to spare, and I know, I know how busy you are. And every time I talk to you or drop into your place, you're always right in the middle of, of some big, uh, big job. So I do appreciate your time today um, to, to speak with us. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Andrew. It was nice. Okay. You've been listening to me, Andrew Byers, and my guest, Fletcher Cole Pitts. You can contact my guest, Fletcher, if you want further information through his email address, and he's happy for you to do that. That's fcolpitts at outlook.com, F-C-O-L-P-I-T-T-S at outlook.com, if you'd like some further information from Fletcher. Thank you to our guest, Fletcher Colpitz, and thank you for listening to What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with anyone else you think may be interested. Thank you. Your What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping Podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer Team for Ape Culture and Perennia Food and Agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com, and find us on Twitter, atta at Atlantic Bee. Honey,